Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening to everybody. It's great to be with you. I want to thank General Metcalf and the, uh, the entire staff here of the National Museum of the Air Force for welcoming me to uh, Dayton this evening to join you. Uh, it's a terrific place to come to. I could spend the entire hour up here talking to you about what I saw today at the museum. It's a fabulous, fabulous place, and, and I was here last August. Enjoyed today's visit even more than my one last year. So you're all very lucky in that you get to frequent the museum more than I do. I live in Texas and Virginia, so it's great to spend some time here at a, a true mecca of aviation history. I'd also like to uh, extend greetings from my co-author, Mr. Bob Dorr, uh, who had originally planned to come with me tonight to give the lecture. Uh, he's laid up and can't make it tonight, but he did want me to send his greetings, and he thanks all of you for your support of the museum, and he hopes you'll find the book very interesting. Bob is a, a well-known aviation author, has offered about 70 titles in aviation history over the course of his career as a Foreign Service diplomat and now uh, for the past 20 years or more a full-time writer. So you've seen some of his materials. They're out there in the store. And he's very, very happy about this book as well. And I'll tell you a little bit about why Bob and I picked this project in a moment. Well, let me begin with a, a short story from a tank destroyer soldier in Normandy in 1944 just a few weeks after the invasion. And his tank destroyer unit was threatened with a German armored counterattack uh, as the Germans tried to break up the Allied beachhead concentrations. And he writes in his account of this incident, we were getting scared and nervous. Suddenly we heard the distinct, distinct sound of those P-47 engines. We picked up radio transmissions from the pilots telling us to stand firm and that they saw the targets. There were 12 of them in formation, and they began the deadliest strafing attack I ever saw in the war. The first plane would strafe, and if he saw a good target, he'd loose a 500-pound bomb. The second plane was coming right behind, and the third, and the fourth, and so on. By the time the 12th plane finished, the first one was starting over again. And he describes how this attack went on for about 20 minutes. He could hear the concussion of the 500-pound bombs hitting. They'd actually go into the ground about five feet and then explode. We watched two tanks get flipped over when one of the pilots landed one square in the middle. They were very close to us. In fact, the shell casings from their 50 calibers were landing in our area. We could hear the Germans firing back, but not one of the planes ever got hit. And after the airstrike was over, our tank crewman, John Malak, went into the German positions and writes, the P-47s had plastered the whole area. I don't think any Germans survived, unless a few scrambled to retreat. But they sure had a lot of equipment there Tanks, half-tracks, cannons, scattered everywhere, all destroyed. Many of, the, many of the Germans were not even hit. The concussion from the bombs was enough to kill many of them. We would never have been able to repel such an attack. I could go on and on about this great plane. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about the men who made airstrikes like that, who delivered death on the heads of enemy soldiers, how they trained, how they fought, what their stories truly were. And that's, of course, the group I'm going to talk about called the Hellhawks, the 365th fighter group in Europe in World War II, one of 18 fighter groups that were a part of the 9th Air Force. We'll discuss how that group was organized. But one thing I can say about all of the men who fought in these fighter groups supporting the GIs in Europe was that each day they rose to ready their warplanes, knowing that every day some would discover what it was like to stare death in the face and they would find out how far their thunderbolts and their courage would take them. So let's open up the story of the P-47 pilots and the maintainers who made those planes fly into the air each day 
and talk about them. Here's a familiar scene for all of you who come to the museum. This is the P-47D bubble top that's owned by the National Museum here. Uh, this is the airplane that we're going to be talking about as a character in the larger story of the Hellhawks. And I want to emphasize how much this story is a people story. I hope you'll find that out from my talk tonight. It's a story of the men who maintained these airplanes and flew them into combat each day until the victory in Europe was won. And so you'll learn about the P-47 tonight a, a bit. Some of you probably know more than I do about it. But you'll learn about its characteristics and it is a character in this story that's largely built around the actual men who did the fighting and the dying. Now, one of the characters in the book, aside from the P-47 Thunderbolt itself, uh, is here tonight with us. We have a lot of veterans in the room tonight. Could all the veterans please raise your hands out here in the audience? Oh, good. It's about probably about half the audience. Of course, we thank you all for your service, and of course, many of us back here supported what you did and what you do today. Do we have any World War II veterans here tonight? Oh, several. Good. Good. Great hand. <laughs> Honored to be with all of you folks tonight, too. And we have one particular World War II veteran who's a friend of mine, and that's the gentleman in this photo, Bob Hagen. So, Bob, where are you? It's right, right here. Bob Hagen is, you don't, he doesn't have to stand up. You can see him right up here on the screen. <laughs> Bob's on the right in a, in a photo taken just a couple of years ago and on the left in 1943. Bob was one of the members of the Hellhawks, the 365th fighter group. And not only is he a veteran of the Hellhawks, but he's also a friend of mine that I met more than 30 years ago. And that's how the story of this Hellhawks came to life for me. Uh, I was at the Air Force Academy in the mid-1970s. My roommate... Bob's son, Tim Hagen, down here, retired uh, colonel in the Air Force, is here. Tim was my roommate for at least a semester or so, I guess. And I learned from Tim as cadets that his dad had been a World War II fighter pilot. And to me, 20, 21 years old, fascinating to hear that his dad had flown in World War II in the Thunderbolt, which I knew was a great airplane, already. So it was that time that I heard the first mention in my life of the Hellhawks. And as 30 years went by, I realized that I wasn't hearing the story of this kind of unit, this ground attack unit uh, in Europe from anybody else, not reading much about it either. And I'd read a lot of aviation history. Well, I learned more about this outfit and what they did representing all of those 18 fighter groups in the 9th Air Force from this gentleman on the left here, Charles Johnson. I learned from Bob and his son, Tim, that Bob, uh, that Charles Johnson here on the left was a crew chief, a mechanic who maintained the P-47. And he had written as his first retirement project in the 70s a huge book. On the right-hand side, you see the cover, 600 pages called The History of the Hellhawks. And I got a look at this book in visits to Bob's house over the years and learned how much history Johnson had put into this work. He had written to his colleagues in the Hellhawks, the 365th, and their three fighter squadrons, the 386th, 87th, and 388th fighter squadrons, asked them for letters and photos in their early retirement years to put together the history of their group in World War II. They were in combat for about 15 months and Charles Johnson got the records from the uh, uh, Department of the Air Force and also collected those letters and photographs and combined them in this 600-page book. Someone here has a copy of it tonight. Raise your hand. Where's, uh, where's Bob? Where's it? No, it's this gentleman right over here. So if you want to see this original book, see my partner over here. But it's 600 pages. It would take you a month to read through these voluminous records, and it's got day by day what happened to this group. Well, 
about five years ago, I got the idea for telling the story of the Hellhawks. And that was, of course, a gift from Charles Johnson back in the 70s, a time capsule. Many of the letters that he received came from veterans who have since passed away. Some of the men who he wanted to hear from had already died by the mid-70s, and he had their families send letters from them. So it's a priceless time capsule of information about this particular group. If you went to try to find one of the 2,000 copies that were printed today on eBay, it would cost you about $350 to buy one of these books. And I got mine before the price went up. And that's how I started my research. Mr. Dorr and I, who'd met in Virginia, began to collaborate about five years ago on this project. And we used this as a starting point, but then interviewed about 50 World War II vets from intelligence, medical staff, uh, the operations staff, the pilots, the crew chiefs, every kind of technician in the Hellhawks, about 1,000 men in combat at any one time. And we put their stories, along with the information we found in Johnson's book, together to form our book, you know, the Hellhawks themselves. And of course, to make a book readable, you have to boil that down to about 300 pages, and that w that's what we try to do, keeping the story moving along. So I'm going to give you a few examples of the stories from the Hellhawks in our book and in Johnson's book to give you an acquaintance of what they did. There are far too many stories to tell you tonight. You're going to have to either look, look up uh, those stories in the book or find a copy of Johnson's uh, if you can. Well, the Hellhawks started out, as a lot of uh, Air Force units did stateside, in the rush to get pilots trained and airplanes deployed overseas. And in 1943, they were constituted at Richmond Army Airfield in Virginia and assigned to be a Thunderbolt fighter outfit. They thought they would be tangling with the Luftwaffe or the Japanese overseas. High altitude escort duty, uh, air combat, silk scarves flying in the wind. That's the Hellhawk uh, goal. But during the course of their training in 43, until they shipped out to Europe in December of that year on the Queen Elizabeth, the mission of the Thunderbolt pilots shifted from long-range escort to the, of the B-17s to becoming the fighter cover, the fighter-bomber cover for Eisenhower's troops in the invasion of Fortress Europe. So they switched from just pure gunnery training stateside to arriving in England in December of 43 and getting a quick course on how to dive bomb with their massive Thunderbolts. And they put those skills that they had already to a new use, and that was supporting the GIs in the coming invasion. Now, the Thunderbolt, of course, was the most massive single-engine fighter that the U.S. built or that anybody built in World War II, uh, almost uh, nine tons when fully loaded in combat. And it had a powerful 2,400-horsepower uh, engine, the R-2800 up front, massive armament, and a great bomb-carrying capacity, as well as being a very rugged airplane. The pilots in combat later would call the Thunderbolt a flying tank because of its ability to absorb battle damage. Here you see the the group in training back in Richmond, Virginia. Once they got to England, they began to fly escort missions. This is a photo from one of the Hellhawks missions that we have in our book. And they broke their, uh, their uh, rookie status by going on escort missions over the Channel and over occupied Europe, but then began to focus more exclusively on interdiction strikes behind the, the German beaches to try to overwhelm the German transportation and supply system before the invasion. So all through the spring of 44, leading up to the invasion, they began to hit German supply and logistics and, of course, gun positions and so forth behind the beaches. And they had a perfect tool to do that in the P-47. I mentioned the heavy armament. There were eight 50 caliber machine guns on the, on the airplane, uh, the heaviest machine gun load of any of the Allied fighters. And the plane was so powerful that it could also lug up to a ton of bombs, one under each wing or perhaps one on the centerline station. 
And you can see the tracers here in this nighttime shot. I don't think this airplane's actually flying. It's been retouched by the Army propagandists, but this is what, the way the Thunderbolt would look firing its tracers at night. They, did, they seldom flew at night. Well, let me give you an example of some of these leading up to D-Day missions that the Hellhawks flew. Here's a, a guy named Jimmy Wells. We interviewed him for our book. Uh, Jim was a lieutenant during the run-up to D-Day, and his flight of four volunteered to attack one of the toughest targets in occupied France, and that was one of the German V-1 launch sites that were aimed at London and southern England. Uh, heavy bombers and medium bombers had failed with up to 2,000 tons of bombs to knock out a single site on the ground. They were very tough, reinforced targets, and so the Thunderbolts were given a chance to go in and attack. V-1 on the left had a one-ton warhead, a pilotless flying jet airplane, and the only way to take them out, they thought, was to hit them at their sites before launch. So Wells and his men go flying in at wave top height across the English Channel one day in May of 44 against an assigned target in a French village. And they knew the target was going to be tough. They had to attack at treetop level with two 1,000-pound bombs hanging under each wing, a total of, a, of two bombs on each airplane. And they had to be going 400 miles an hour when they came across the target so that the armor-piercing qualities of the bombs would penetrate and then detonate. So Wells and his men are at treetop height, flattening barley fields, bending small trees in their prop wash when the target comes into view. The flak begins to come up from the German gun emplacements. They focus on the emplacements and the target buildings ahead. And then Wells noticed a string of telephone poles set around the perimeter. They'd seen them in the recon photos but did not know the true purpose. They thought maybe communications antennas, some sort of radio uh, apparatus. When he got that close, he, see, he saw that these poles and the one-inch steel cables strung between them were there to kill him, prevent low-altitude attacks. So he and his four Thunderbolts went under the wires. Dipped down below 25 feet. All four airplanes made it under except one. The flight leader had his, the top of his vertical stabilizer sliced off by the cables. They went in and hit the targets at 400 miles an hour. There was an eight-second delay on the bombs. They zoomed past, strafing the gun pits and the German soldiers there. As they roared away, the bombs behind them detonated, and they escaped over the English Channel. One pilot... Uh, William Cornell had flown through a telephone wire, not a steel cable, but a phone wire, and had it flapping around the side of his cockpit all the way back to his base. A shell fragment had come in through the canopy and sliced open his scalp, and he was bleeding, and he was shouting. He'd ripped off his helmet, and he was shouting, Mayday, 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 on the radio. Of course, he couldn't hear what they were saying back. He'd taken off his helmet. <laughs> Bloody and wounded, they all landed at the airfield back in Bewley, England, their base at the time. And the medics pulled Cornell out of the cockpit, stitched him up, it was just a scalp wound, and he was flying again three days later. When they did the post-strike assessment, they found that their bombs had penetrated the bunkers, and what 2,000 tons from high altitude had not done, eight tons from the Thunderbolts had done, had, had wiped out this particular site. So other fighter bombers took on high-value sites. And Wells, I asked him, uh, you know, was that, uh, did you fly any more of those missions like that, any of those volunteer missions against the no-ball sites? And he said, once was enough. Here are the armorers loading 50 caliber ammunition into the wings of a Thunderbolt's gun bays. Eight guns, four on each wing. Firing rate was somewhere around four to 500 rounds per minute. If you added all eight of those guns together, when you squeeze the trigger for three seconds in a strafing burst, you would put about 15 pounds of lead flying into the target at Mach 3. And the kinetic energy equivalent of that impact was about that of a, a loaded 
delivery truck going 80 miles an hour. So literally the blast from those guns hitting a target in a burst would blow a truck completely off the road. And that's how the men of the Hellhawks used these weapons to literally blow a column apart, set it afire with the incendiary ammunition they had as well. And it was a deadly, deadly combination of armament and bomb power that they had. Here's a shot of those tracer bullets again going downrange. They converged about 350 yards in front of the airplane for air-to-air combat purposes, but you can see how concentrated the burst of fire was from those weapons. Of course, the other armament we talked about was either a 500-pound bomb, as in this case, or a 1,000-pounder under each wing. Compliments of the Hellhawks. This is a winter 1945 shot. And the Hellhawks had a lot of esprit de corps. As you can see, they... uh, had chosen their name carefully, and some of the pilots followed suit with their attire. This is Lewis Hauk, who stitched some extra regulation uh, apparatus on his helmet. Not all the Hellhawks pilots flew like this, but it was enough to uh, you know, put the, 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 the spirit into their men, their fellow uh, crewmates out there, their flight mates. And Louis Hauk was one of the uh, squadron commanders uh, early in the Hellhawks' deployment history. So their big test came for the first time on D-Day in June 6, 1944, you know, 65 years ago. And we have a chapter in our book about the exploits of the Hellhawks on D-Day. As you imagine, their job was to serve as flying artillery, wipe out the Luftwaffe over the beaches, and then stop anything German from moving on the roads below. Uh, Whether it was with strafing or bombing, they had assigned targets, but then they were free to rove behind the beachheads and stop the German reinforcements from moving up during the critical hours of the beach landings on D-Day. We interviewed John Fetzer on the right in this photo with his uh, pal, Malin Stell. Stell and he shared a tent. Stell was killed in action in July of 45. Both of them were in action on D-Day. And Fetzer was flying behind a guy named Arlo Henry. They spotted a troop of panzers moving up into counterattack positions behind the beachheads. And uh, Fetzer described for us what that was like. He looked down in the darkness of the early D-Day morning and he saw Arlo Henry, his leader, go in first One of the tanks had poked its snout into a French farmhouse and had its gun barrel sticking out. Henry put both of his bombs into this French farmhouse, and the explosion created a volcano of dirt and rocks and bricks flying up into the air. And when it all collapsed, he said, like bookends, only the chimneys were standing on the end of that farmhouse. The tank had been flipped over in the rubble. Fetzer followed behind him, skipped one of his bombs wide into a field, but the other one landed right behind a tiger tank. And he looked back over his shoulder as he pulled up from his steep dive, and he said, I was amazed to see this tank flipping over in midair from the concussion of his bomb. And later he told us, he said, he did a lot of things on D-Day and later in the war. On D-Day, he later destroyed a half-track with a 1,000-pounder, but he never felt that he'd made as much of a contribution as when he knocked out this Tiger tank behind the beaches, an example of that here in the right-hand photo. Fetzer went on to fly into the fall of 44 when he was wounded and then finally sent home to the States. On June 7th, after the initial beach assault on the 6th, uh, it was obvious that they were in a very tenuous position, especially at Omaha Beach, and they got this note from their commander, uh, Louis Brereton, the 9th Air Force commander, and it went down to the head of their fighter uh, command, uh, General Pete Casada, who was in direct charge of the fighter bombers over, over the Normandy beaches. And he wrote to the 365th and the other groups that were involved. General Casada said, It's possible, if not probable, that your efforts were in large part responsible for the attack on Omaha Beach continuing. History will show that you saved the day, thanks to the air cover and the paralyzing blanket 
of firepower that they laid down on the Wehrmacht, the German army behind the beaches. Dick Miller had an interesting experience on the afternoon of June 7th, the next day. He was one of the thunderbolts over the beach all day supporting the GIs when he was hit by German flak and his airplane couldn't make it back across the channel. So he bellies in on the bluffs over Omaha Beach and he plows his fighter plane to a stop. Its nickname was Turnip Termite. On a previous sortie, the airplane had flown so low in a Belgian field that it threw some of the crops into the engine cowling. Turnip Termite was its name. Miller stands up in the cockpit, sees some combat engineers over near the edge of the bluff and they were very grateful to see him and happy because he had just plowed across the minefield they were clearing. <laughs> a 100, 100 yard swath of cleared land. So he said, what do I do now? They said, we think you should walk back along the way that you came. And they hustled Miller out, second lieutenant, stuck him in a foxhole for the rest of the day and he was evacuated to England uh, after a very interesting afternoon on the beachhead. Well, his boss, Arlo Henry, who he'd borrowed the plane from, was not so happy that his plane had been left behind in Normandy. But by the time uh, Miller got back two weeks later, his anger had cooled and he had termite number two flying and Henry was a little bit more placated. The airplane itself was salvaged by the engineers and parts of it were cannibalized and later used to fix up turnip termite two in France later that summer. Miller was the first allied pilot to land on liberated French soil during the invasion. It wasn't a very glorious landing, but he was the first one to land. Now, as the Hellhawks fought over the next few weeks during D-Day, the uh, commander of the, the uh, group, the guy on the left, Colonel Lance Call, was instrumental in seeing that the maintainers had the airplanes ready each morning. As, as you know, it was a maximum effort to get the planes across the channel. And also, at the same time, they were fighting in combat to prepare the group to move to Normandy, along with the other fighter groups involved with supporting the GIs up close. So Call was handling all of that. He was a pre-war pilot had actually served with the Royal Canadian Air Force before Pearl Harbor and was known as somewhat of a stickler for administrative detail. He walked around with a, a riding crop. Uh, he was a martinet in some of the uh, sergeant's opinion, the enlisted men's opinion, but he delivered. He got things done on time. He had supplies and hot food for the men when, it, when they needed it. Well, he wasn't viewed by the pilots in the group though as the kind of combat leader they really wanted to follow into France where they knew the toughest fighting yet lay. And they complained that Call sometimes lost his way leading a formation. There was one noted incident that the veterans still recall when as they cruised by the English coastline out across towards enemy territory, somebody spoke into the radio, there goes England. <laughs> Off course, they barely made it back to England with dry fuel tanks. Another incident, some of the pilots had to drop out of formation because of Call's inability to carry enough power in the climb up through the English overcast. So he didn't have a great reputation as a pilot and they also thought he wasn't aggressive enough in the dive bombing and strafing job that they did. Uh, the young 20, 21 year old pilots uh, were not inspired by Call. They even suspected him of having bad eyesight and then using one of the sharp eyed pilots in the squadron as it has his eyes on combat missions. So they weren't too happy about him. The night before the group was to move to France in late June, Pete Casada, the commander of the 9th Tactical Air Command flies into the base puts his arm around Call on the, on the uh, tarmac and says, Lance, you've been doing a great job. I've got another job for you. I'm relieving you. Call gets relieved and the news spreads down the flight line like a bomb blast among the enlisted men and the pilots. Who are they going to have lead them into France? And it turns out the answer here is on the right. Uh, Colonel Ray J. Stecker, a staff colleague of Casada's in North Africa and in Sicily, 
who had been serving in headquarters in England up until this point. Stecker was a fighter pilot, West Point graduate, 1932, a football star, All-American in football back in the early 30s, and had left the service and had come back in before the war. And he was very different from Call in that he was a hands-on leader. He told the new pilots, or he was a new pilot, he told the veteran pilots that he would fly at the back of the formation and watch how the job was done before he began leading combat missions himself. And that kind of unassuming character uh, really struck the pilots well. And then he began to lead from the front. And he was full of charisma. You can see he's a very good-looking guy with prematurely silver-gray hair, quite a ladies' man. This was the image of the fighter pilot that I guess these men felt more comfortable following. And he proved himself a very effective leader in the months to come as the Hellhawks moved into France. During the course of their combat experiences of about 15 months, they moved eight times with the advancing lines of Eisenhower's armies to keep close to the battlefront. Here you see uh, Stecker on the right with Pete Casada, the commander of the ta uh, Ninth Tactical Air Command. And Stecker was, as I, as I noted, a charismatic individual. Casada began to assign VIP delegations to come to the base, wherever the Hellhawks were, to see how a real frontline elite fighter bomber outfit operated. So he would entertain. And Casada and Stecker would have the likes of Martha Gellhorn here appear at the base. She was a war correspondent and also happened to be the second wife of Ernest Hemingway. So Gellhorn was a frequent visitor to be officially entertained, of course, by Colonel Stecker. She stayed overnight at his quarters several times. The men winked, elbowed each other, but they didn't say anything more. Gellhorn actually writes about the Thunderbolt men, and I'll share a few of her comments with you in a moment. Well, Stecker proved to be a very effective leader when they arrived in France. They began to fly out of unimproved airfields that the engineers had just carved out of the French countryside. Their first base was just behind saint mary Glise, just behind Utah Beach, only a few miles inland, and they could actually be shot at in the traffic pattern by German uh, anti-aircraft artillery over on the front lines a few miles away. Here's one of the armorers sitting on a thousand-pounder and its cousins there on the front line bomb dump. Now, the conditions were very primitive. Instead of the experience of the 8th Air Force pilots who flew out of bases in England, came home to a warm Quonset hut each night after a combat mission as frenetic and as terrible as those were, they had a, a, a rather relaxed existence back in England. The men of the Hellhawks, enlisted and officers alike, slept in pup tents. They dove into slit trenches when there was an air raid or an artillery barrage. They ate cold K or C rations and they lived in the mud of their French airfields. And so it was very much an existence closer to the frontline GIs than the glory stories that you hear about silk scarf aviators. Here's Stecker flying near the bombed out French chateau that they used as part of their base and he's ready to go into the air, but he couldn't have done his combat leading in his shiny thunderbolt here without the help of all the ground maintainers that got his airplane ready each day. And who were the, what were the nemeses of the thunderbolts in combat? Well, certainly the Luftwaffe was there in small numbers at first and then more and more as the fighting near Germany. But the Germans had a very effective uh, system of anti-aircraft artillery, FLAC, we would call it. And on the left is the FLAC 38, a four-barreled 20-millimeter uh, rapid-fire anti-aircraft gun. There's an example out here on the museum floor. It could fire upwards of 1,200 shells per minute up to about 15,000 15, feet in altitude. And each shell was explosive-tipped. So if it struck your airplane, there was a larger detonation than just a machine gun round. And on the right, of course, is the deadly 88-millimeter anti-aircraft and anti-tank gun that the Germans employed in all roles on the battlefield. And the thunderbolts of the Hellhawks encountered these flak weapons in spades over Normandy as the Allies fought to get through the hedgerows. 
here's Stecker on the line inspecting with one of the sergeants there some flak damage to one of the Thunderbolts. As I mentioned before, the, the Allied pilots were really confident in the ability of the Thunderbolt to protect them in combat. It had that massive 18-cylinder engine up front to absorb frontal fire, armor plate behind and underneath, and the pilot sat up high in the fuselage on top of the turbocharger ducts, which, which meant that if you did a belly landing, uh, that crushable metal down there would protect your legs from a crash landing. And often Thunderbolt pilots thought that it was preferable to belly land the airplane rather than to try to bail out and take your chances with the silk. So the Thunderbolt was viewed as a foxhole in the sky by the pilots. Here's some examples of the battle damage that they survived. Here's an 88 millimeter shell hole through the machine gun bays uh, of a Thunderbolt wing. Went right through without detonating. Over on the right you see a hole in the cowling of this Thunderbolt and black oil streaking the entire fuselage. It wasn't uncommon for one or two cylinders to be shot off this double row uh, wasp and for the engine to still run and bring the pilots back to base. And they loved the ability of this airplane to take combat damage and then return a pilot safely. If a coolant line on a Mustang engine, a Merlin, got nicked, that engine would seize in just a couple of minutes from lack of coolant. The air-cooled engine on the Thunderbolt from Pratt & Whitney kept them going long after a Mustang would have expired. Here's a story from Dave Harmon on the upper left getting his Distinguished Flying Cross. For this particular mission he flew, he dove on a flak battery that had been shredding Thunderbolts in the area, and several planes had gone down to its guns already. He was determined to get the gunners. He dove on this battery with his machine guns firing, and he killed the gun crew in the dive. But one of the crew members in the German crew slumped over the gun, and they kept firing, and he zoomed at low altitude right over the gun crew, and a 20-millimeter shell went into his main fuel tank. Now, Harmon reports that he felt the thump against his seat, and his seat lurched upward in the cockpit. The airplane shuddered, but the engine kept flying and he flew below treetop level away from the gun site and then zoomed up and made it home, his airplane full of holes. When he got back, they had to junk the airplane. It was such a wreck. But his mechanic fished out the tip of the 20-millimeter shell that detonated in the fuel tank. The tank was nearly full of gas. There was no oxygen in there to support combustion. And so the explosion was muffled, and the thunderbolt brought him home. And so in his letters to us in our research, Harmon would write to Bob and I and sign his name, Dave Harmon, the luckiest man alive. True, true. After the breakout from Normandy in July of 44, the Germans were trapped in the, what was called the Falaise Pocket, three sides of allies trying to hem them in and cut off the main German army in Normandy. And it became, Falaise and the area around it became known as a killing ground because of the Allied artillery and airstrikes being brought in on the Germans. Here's a German armored or self-propelled gun and its dead crew lying in the road. Some of the roads leading out of this pocket were called the corridor of death. There was so much mayhem and chaos and, and horror inflicted on the retreating Germans. They had to leave almost all of their equipment behind uh, as they retreated back across the Seine River towards Paris. The Germans in the field left their accounts, either giving them in POW briefings or wrote after the war. They called this area a Yabo Rennstrecke, a fighter-bomber race course, because of the just circling thunderbolts always overhead. One German corporal wrote, the Yabos were a burden on our souls. And one prisoner told uh, his interrogator, yeah, I saw the Luftwaffe, seven of them, 7,000 Yabos. <laughs> and German commanders wrote about 
how their divisions would be decimated in the move to or from the battlefront by the air power overhead. They would lose 30 to 40% of their combat strength if they tried to move in daylight against the fighter-bomber attacks. Well, one pilot who flew over the fillet's pocket was the guy on the left, Jim McWhorter, Mac McWhorter, and his crew chief here with his airplane, Holland Ass 2. McWhorter was actually shot down by the Germans near fillet's, and he bellied his airplane in, managed to escape a German patrol that was looking for him, and then he hid in a bean patch for 48 hours, waiting for the resistance to come and get him. They didn't show up. There was a lot of fighting around there, and they were keeping their heads down. So finally, he got tired of waiting, and he heard shots in the nearby village, thought that they were executing the villagers to find out where he was. Well, he wasn't the focus of the attention. The Germans were pulling out because an Allied armored column was moving in, and he heard tanks. He crept out of the bean patch to the road, and he saw a tank come down the road, and then another one that he saw the star on, so he knew it was an Allied column, and he jumped out, and he yelled, Stop that son of a gun! Well, he had four 75-millimeter cannon pointing at him immediately with all the machine guns and a dozen GIs with their M1s leveled at him. He said he held his hands so high that his shoulders practically popped out of their sockets. They threw him in a half-track to take him back to headquarters, and the radio crackles. By then, Casada had seen that each armored column had a radio that could talk to the Thunderbolts overhead, a big improvement in coordination between the ground and air forces. He hears the radio crackle, and he hears a familiar voice. It's that of Captain Curly Rogers leading a flight of four Thunderbolts, one of his, one of his uh, flying mates. So he grabs the microphone and he says, Curly, it's me, Mac. I'll be back at the base tonight. Whatever you do, don't give away my cigarettes, whiskey, and clothes. <laughs> Unwritten rule that said if you went down and were missing, the pilots would send your uniform home, a few trinkets, and everything else was divided up among the survivors. So he knew what was happening to his stuff back at the base near... Saint Mary Glees. Rogers comes back on the radio and says, Mac, glad to hear you made it. I'll see what I can do about your clothes, but your cigarettes and whiskey are long gone. <laughs> and then Nick Waters back into combat. It said he told us he told us that it took about a week to get his clean underwear back from all the other pilots in the unit. Those were in short supply in Normandy. Uh, he passed away last year, and one of, the, one of the sad facts of writing this book is that many of the veterans we interviewed, of course, have passed on. Uh, we've lost about a half a dozen who did interviews for our book. So it's very sad that we lost him in Florida last year. It was actually before the, uh, or just after our reunion, the, the Hellhawks reunion in, in Michigan last year, so last fall. So rest in peace, Mac McWhorter. Well, before I get to the story of Bob Brooking, I wanted to talk about um, the Germans, again, who reported on the effectiveness of these fighter bombers. Here We had one German who said uh, that uh, the Germans had a system for identifying airplanes overhead. They would look up and they said if it was camouflaged, it was a British fighter. If it was silver, it was an American fighter. And if you couldn't see them at all, it was a German fighter. <laughs> that's because the Hellhawks were very effective along with their other groups at sweeping the skies over the battlefront from Luftwaffe fighters that might try to aid their troops on the ground. The Germans were not able to provide close air support in anything, a fraction of the effectiveness that the Allies could because of air superiority. So we move on to the story of Bob Brooking, one of the rookies in the Hellhawks replacement, comes in after the, the fighting in Normandy and France has started. He's a high-time pilot from Connecticut who has got a lot of fighter hours but has never squeezed the trigger in anger. And he winds up with the Hellhawks on his first combat mission as a captain over Luxembourg in September of 44. He gets shot up by the Germans, was too aggressive, had to belly his airplane into a field, 
and he was hustled by a farmer into a barn to hide out from the Germans looking for him. He survived the night. The next morning, they took him into town. And just then, by coincidence, as the Allies approached, the Germans pulled out of this Luxembourg village called Esch. And they left the town. The, the, the villagers had a party. They had been under occupation for four years. They opened the wine bottles. They got everybody out in the streets with their Luxembourg flags. The only American in sight was Bob Brooking, and he was the parade marshal for their Liberation Day parade on his first combat mission. He says, I don't deserve any of this. And one of them said, today you are the king. And Brooking told us that if you had seen the tears coming down the faces of these townspeople being liberated from tyranny, you would understand why the Americans were fighting in Europe in World War II. And he never forgot that moment that's captured in this photograph. And then Brooking became with his experience, uh, quickly became a squadron commander in the 386 Fighter Squadron, which was Bob Hagen's outfit. Here you see Bob Hagen on the right telling some of his fellow pilots how you really put the numbers on a German fighter in air-to-air -air combat. Now, this was a ground attack unit, but they flew out of these captured airfields as across France and into Belgium and Germany. They found a lot of captured German aircraft, and they loved, of course, as any fighter pilot would, to try to mix it up with a Luftwaffe when they could be found. And so here's Bob in a publicity photo showing how you have a successful dogfight. Is that Mac McWhorter on the bottom left? Right there. So there's a story about, there's many stories about the air-to-air -air effectiveness of the Hellhawks and their Thunderbolts. But one in particular sticks with me, and that was October 21st, 1944. 36 Thunderbolts were in the air against a German force of Focke-Wulf 190s numbering more than 60. And the Focke-Wulf 190 was the best frontline propeller-driven fighter of the Germans. They also had a lot of uh, BF-109s. Here's one of our crew chiefs, Glenn Smith, 90 years old, still lives in Colorado Springs, sitting in a captured 109 on one of their airfields. But the, the Thunderbolts against the Luftwaffe, in this case a 190, were very effective. And in this case of being outnumbered almost two to one, nobody hesitated. The Thunderbolts of the Hellhawks roared up against this German flight above them, and there was a tremendous dogfight on that afternoon over the German frontier. And in the ensuing combat, 21 German planes were shot down and not a single Hellhawk was down to enemy fire. And for that distinction in air-to-air -air combat, the Hellhawks won their first presidential unit citation for that October 21st action. And it turns out that Bob was involved in that action. He was number two behind William Cornell, the squadron commander. And as Cornell opened fire on one of the Germans, the shell casings from those 850 calibers began to stream from the bottoms of the wings through those little ejection ports. And they happened to fall right in front of Bob's P-47. And he ingested a large number of brass cartridge cases, put out his engine, and he was forced to belly in. And we'll let him tell you about how that story ended near the end of the talk. Very successful in air-to-air -air combat were the Hellhawks. And, of course, here's Bob with another example of the machine at the National Air and Space Museum in Dulles, Virginia, right outside Dulles Airport. You can see the cannon, uh, the machine gun barrels right over his head. The Hellhawks told us routinely that they were unafraid of tangling with any number of German fighters. They had confidence in their training, their leadership, and their airplane. And they would go four against 20 without, a, without blinking an eye because they knew they would come out on the end with the upper hand. Well, after the fighting in the fall of 44 up to the German frontier, as you know, Hitler launched a massive counterattack in the Ardennes in 1944, December 16th, waited for a period of bad weather when the Allied fighter bombers could not be effective, and an uh, armored counterthrust swept west into what we now call the bulge in that fighting, uh, the largest battle ever fought by American troops. 
there were tremendous breakthroughs of the German forces all up and down the front lines. In this Life magazine photo, you can see some Allied tanks here in the snowy landscape of Belgium and Luxembourg. How could the Hellhawks help when they were grounded by bad weather? Well, they didn't let that stop them. There was this man on the left, John Matzenbecker, one of the squadron commanders. Uh, he was told to get something in the air to try to assist the Allied units, the Americans that were being overrun on the snowy ground below. And so Matzenbecker led a flight into the air on December 17th, the day after the attack began. He found a column of tanks below the clouds and radioed back to the radar controllers, is that a friendly column or are these the Germans? And the, ra the radio crackled back, that's the enemy. Matzenbecker said, I'm going down, send re reinforcements. And so he and his squadron mates worked over one German column for the rest of that afternoon until the weather closed in, exhausting their ammunition and bombs. The next day, the weather was even worse, ceilings down to 100 feet or less, fog lying close to the ground, and the word came from headquarters that something had to be done to stop these German armored columns. And so Stecker, who had a reputation as a leader who could get things done in tough situations, picked out a flight led by Bob Brooking, the liberator of Esch Luxembourg, and asked him to get some men in the air. And only four of them took off through this fog with um, smoke pots, flare pots, lining the edge of the runway so they could see. And he got up in the sunshine above the low cloud deck over the Ardennes and tried to follow out Casada's and Stecker's instructions. And what he found below was just a flat undercast. He found one little hole that he could see the landscape in. So Brookings said, stay here. He went down to reconnoiter through this hole in the clouds. And it's a long story, but to shorten it up, he gets down through the clouds, sees nothing to attack, knows that there's another valley over the ridgeline. He flies in the fog and clouds over the ridgeline blind, hoping he won't hit the top of the Ardennes Ridge that he was hopping over down into the adjoining valley where he finds a panzer column. They're so startled to see him in this bad weather, they don't fire. He's too close to open fire. He zooms back up to the clouds and leads his other three men down through that hole and then back onto the Germans. First, they bombed the front and rear of the columns to stop the column in its tracks. And then they made another pass after pass after pass with their machine guns. And their job was to take the firepower of these thunderbolts taking off here in Chievre, Belgium, and put it on that German column and divert it from the thrust westward. And so in this post-war photograph, you see what they were about. This is how low a thunderbolt would get to the ground in a dive bomb run. And uh, I have a, a passage from Martha Gellhorn, who uh, was the wife of Ernest Hemingway, who visited the Hellhawks units up front. Here's what, she, here's what she writes. A colleague and I drove up to Bastogne on a secondary road through breathtaking scenery. The Thunderbolts had created the scenery. You can say the words death and destruction, and they don't mean anything. But they are awful words when you are looking at what they mean. There were some German staff cars along the side of the road. They had not merely been hit by machine gun bullets. They had been mashed into the ground. There were half tracks and tanks literally wrenched apart and a gun position hit directly by bombs. All around these lacerated or flattened objects of steel, there was the usual riffraff, papers, tin cans, cartridge belts, helmets, an odd shoe, clothing. There were also ignored and completely inhuman, the hard frozen corpses of Germans. Then there was a clump of houses burned and gutted with only a few walls standing and around them the enormous bloated bodies of cattle. She goes on to describe how deadly the Hellhawks and their fellow P-47 pilots were in the attack 
against the German armored columns. And one German commander wrote, once the skies cleared and the fighter bombers were overhead, that he could look back as night fell and see the line of burning vehicles all the way back to the German border. So the Hellhawks were instrumental in breaking the thrust of that assault once the weather cleared. And then throughout the remaining months, uh, weeks of December and into January, they assaulted the German columns and drove them back along with the GIs, of course, into Germany. And before I get into this story, let me read you one more excerpt from a man who was a combat surgeon in, uh, with an armored division on the front lines who also witnessed a P-47 strike. His name was uh, Brendan Phibbs. Air strikes on the way. We watch from a top window as P-47s dip in and out of clouds through suddenly erupting strings of Christmas tree lights before one speck turns over and drops toward Earth in the damnedest sight of the Second World War, the dive bomber attack. The speck, snarling, screaming, dropping faster than a stone until it's clearly doomed to smash into the Earth. Then, past the limits of belief, an impossible flattening beyond houses and trees, an upward arch that makes the eyes hurt, and as the speck hurtles away, whoom! The earth erupts 500 feet up in swirling black smoke. More specks snarl, dive, scream. Two squadrons, eight of them, leaving congealing, combining, whirling pillars of black smoke, lifting trees, houses, vehicles, and we devoutly hope, bits of Germans. We yell and pound each other's backs. Gods from the clouds, this is how you do it. You don't attack painfully across frozen plains. You simply drop in on the enemy and blow them out of existence. That's what an armored trooper wanted to see was the Hellhawks coming to their assistance. Well, they drove the Germans back with tremendous loss across the German frontier. And then, of course, the fighting continued. And it continued in both directions. On January 1st, 1945, on New Year's Day, the Hellhawks were struck by a surprise Luftwaffe attack, part of a big operation called Bodenplatt, base plate, Goering's last gasp to employ the Luftwaffe to try to wrench back control of the skies over the battlefront. And he put 800 fighters into the air, and they were assigned to devastate the frontline airfields of the Allies, British-American fighter fields. They caught the Hellhawks on the ground. Two squadrons were airborne already on the attack. One, the 386, Bob's unit, was on the ground. Bob was, I think, carrying his parachute out to the flight line to get into his Thunderbolt when 16 Messerschmitt 109 swept in over their field at Metz, France and rattled their machine guns and in the ensuing 20 minutes destroyed about 30 of the Thunderbolts on the taxiways and the runways. Everybody dove for a foxhole, including Bob, and he can talk about that in the Q&A. Uh, but amazingly, while this attack continued and the Hellhawks witnessed firsthand what they had been subjecting the Germans to, Amazingly, no Hellhawks were killed in the attack. About a dozen were wounded. We have their stories in the book here. Uh, most of them tried to flatten themselves thinner than a piece of paper in a foxhole. But the Army's anti-aircraft gunners opened up, and in the course of that 20-minute attack that destroyed a couple of dozen Thunderbolts, the Army shot down eight of the 16 Messerschmitts as these inexperienced German pilots tried to wheel over the field and come back for run after run. Well, the bombs began to blow up on the airplanes. They burned from their gasoline. You can see the field was a wreck, and one entire squadron had been wiped out. But that afternoon, the two returning squadrons came and shared their airplanes among the remaining pilots, of course, and they were all back in the air that afternoon flying combat strikes. The hoped-for German surprise didn't occur, and the attack largely strategically was a failure. And in fact, Adolf Galland, the German fighter commander, said Operation Bodenplatt was the knife in the back that wiped out the Luftwaffe for the rest of the war. 
Well, one German survived the shoot-down. Stefan Kohl, 20 years old and a sergeant in the Luftwaffe, parachutes down into a cemetery nearby. The MPs grab him, and he's taken prisoner, of course, and taken to the operations shack of the 386th Fighter Squadron. Bob Brooking, the hero of Esch Luxembourg, is the major in charge of the operations for the squadron. He sees this German pilot boasting about the damage that they've inflicted. Cole thinks they've won a great victory. And he was so boastful, and he spoke very, uh, very, pract- uh, very passable English, that uh, Brooking said that uh, Cole looked out the window, jerked his thumb at the, dr- at the burning thunderbolts, and said, what do you think of that? Well, Brooking wanted to slug the guy but he turned on his heel and walked out, seething with anger. About two days later, from Paris came an entire squadron of brand new Thunderbolts. We built 15,683 during the war. They were replaceable. Brooking goes down two days later to the stockade, grabs coal out of the guard shack, marches him out to the flight line and says, what do you think of that? (laughs) And Cole says in his English, That is what is beating us, recognizing that the industrial capacity of the United States was something the Germans would never be able to match. And he was glad to be out of the war. Before they took his picture here, he insisted that he get to comb his hair and polish his boots. He had a lot of pride. Well, here is a line of thunderbolts in service near the end of the war. The the, um, Hellhawks kept moving up. They moved from Metz, France, back to Belgium to another airport called Florin. They wound up in Aachen, the first Allied fighter group to operate out of a German airfield on German soil. Then they wound up the war at um, uh, Fritzlar. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Wound up here at Fritzlar uh, into the spring of 45 as the war drew to a close. Everyone knew who was going to win, but the fighting went on deadlier than ever. Here you see the fighter squadron commanders. There's Bob Brooking, John Matzenbecker, Bob Fry, who was an Annapolis cadet who defected to the Army Air Forces right out of Annapolis to become a fighter pilot and became the top ace in the Hellhawks. And then there's Stecker at the center of the photo briefing them on an upcoming mission. Their job was, of course, to put the German Army out of action. And they did it with tremendous effectiveness. But, of course, as the Germans pulled their flak weapons back with them closer and closer to the German heartland, the flak began to get more and more dense and more and more dangerous. Not only did they fight German armor, German troops in the field, but the Hellhawks also took upon themselves the job of taking out German supply lines, trains, troop convoys, truck uh, columns. And this guy in the upper right corner, Harold Szymanski, was very effective at shooting up locomotives. He was so good at it that they called him Loco, as you might suspect. He uh, bragged about his hatred for the Germans and his ability to take out locomotives. They said, why don't you shoot up the rest of the cars? He says, if I hit the locomotive, it stops and it's not going anywhere. You guys can take care of the rest. He was so good at it that um, the public affairs folks heard about his exploits, uh, wanted him to come back to Paris to do a a radio interview with Armed Forces Radio. He refused. Finally had to be ordered back by the Hellhawks to record an interview for broadcast in the U.S. He went back to Paris, did the interview against his will, and then hopped in his Thunderbolt to go back to the front lines And as he took off that afternoon into rainy, overcast skies, he flew into a French apartment building. So Szymanski didn't make it out. But the other Hellhawks had this job of shooting up trains, bombing tanks, and they did it with tremendous, deadly efficiency. Um, Here's a pilot by the name of Sam Lutz in the upper left corner. His unit attacked a German ammo dump in April of 45. 
they didn't have bombs, so they strafed each ammo bunker. They would explode in a titanic volcano in front of them, as you see here. And Lutz was hit by a chunk of flying concrete that came through his canopy. He had his oxygen mask on. He was knocked unconscious, but the airplane was trimmed slightly up, and he zoomed up into the sky. And as it began to slot, uh, wing over and go into its death dive, he came to and managed to pull the airplane out of the dive, fly back with his canopy broken to the base, and, of course, lived to, to tell us about it. He trembled so much stepping out of the airplane that day that he couldn't hold the pencil to sign his name on the flight form after he got back on the ground. And for the destruction of this German ammo concentration uh, in southern Germany, the Hellhawks won their second presidential unit citation. His was a survival story, and there are many in, a, in the story of the Hellhawks, but many of the men didn't make it back. We'll talk about the losses both inflicted on the Germans and those that the Hellhawks sustained. Here's the tote board held up by uh, Jordan, the intelligence officer, that the Hellhawks maintained of their various target categories. And the numbers, they're hard to read in this photo, but you can see them here. Um, aircraft in the air or on the ground, they destroyed 259 and damaged 141. Knocked out 190 tanks. Almost 4,000 trucks or motor transports. And you can see down the line the effectiveness of the Hellhawks, one again of dozen, a dozen or more fighter groups involved in this job. And uh, this tally of destruction was something that was largely confirmed by the ground forces moving up. The pilots tended to overestimate the number of tanks they destroyed, but all of the other stuff was largely accurate and confirmed, especially in tight combat situations. Their effectiveness was undeniable. So this was a, a record that the Hellhawks were very proud of. But it came at a cost. And as the German defenses pulled back into Germany, the losses began to go up, in fact. Instead of winding down near the end of the war, they were more severe than ever. We just heard last fall from a German doctor in the town of Mutsch, Germany, who wrote to say that his family had erected this granite monument on the outskirts of their village. And it was dedicated last year. And here's the close-up of the plaque. In memory of the American aviators, Tostevin, Wallace, and Holt, and the American soldiers killed in action liberating our community much from tyranny in World War II from a German citizen. The middle name, John Wallace, was a hellhawk who was killed in late March of 45 when his thunderbolt was hit and he cartwheeled into the ground with his napalm load. He perished in the crash. But even today, 65 years later, people remember him. Here's another person we remember, Grant Stout, young pilot of 23, in March of 45 again, he's hit by flak. He is seen to bail out by his wingman. His parachute opens. He goes down to enemy territory. Captured, they thought. They'd see him in a couple of months or maybe a few weeks when the war was over. Well, at the end of the war, the Hellhawks waited in vain. He was found to have been killed in action, and his body was sent home to upstate New York. That's not the end of the story, though. What happened to Grant Stout? They saw his parachute open, and he floated to the ground. Well, they thought perhaps that his wingmates thought that he'd struck the vertical stabilizer on bailout and was fatally injured. It wasn't until the 1990s that a Canadian researcher, uh, who Bob Doerr later talked to, found out that there were records of a war crimes trial near the village where Grant bailed out. And in the war crimes trial conducted by the Army and its attorneys, they prosecuted four German men, including one sergeant from a flak battery nearby, who were accused of murdering Stout on the ground after he had parachuted safely to Earth. And the story that came out in the, tri in the trial transcripts was that uh, Meyer, one of the German uh, military men, 
had incited a crowd to beat the young pilot to death, and then he finished him off with a pistol in a ditch outside this German village. The, war, the rules of war were breaking down in the final weeks of the conflict. There wasn't much guarantee that you'd be safe if you parachuted into a farmer's field with a pitchfork or if you landed outside a village that had just been bombed or strafed. So even that story from the 1950s may not be totally accurate. There's some evidence, say, a, or a Canadian friend and a German researcher that the Allies prosecuted the wrong guys and they were scapegoated by the town people who didn't want themselves to be blamed for the murder. They put the guilt on these German personnel, military personnel in town. So we may never know exactly what happened to Grant Stout. Same as all of the other pilots in the Hellhawks, a guy who deserved to come home but became another victim of Hitler's Reich. This is a story I particularly find poignant. This is the gravestone of Lieutenant Morris Miller. He was shot down in late March of 45 again. On the same mission into Germany, two men named Miller from the Hellhawks were shot down and killed in action, both from Texas. Not until 1950 did Miller's father discover his son's body. Uh, the bodies weren't recovered at the end of the war. He had to write over and over again to army authorities. And finally, the German mayor of the town near where he was lost wrote back to say, we've discovered a crash site in a swamp on the outskirts of our town. And together with army authorities, the German townspeople pointed out the crash site, ID'd the serial numbers on the machine guns and the engine, and found Morris Miller's remains five years after the end of the war. And then they finally brought him home, and he, his, he resides now. He rests in the Galveston Memorial Cemetery, just a little south of Houston, where I live. So that's the story of that Tex Miller who was shot down. And yet, just a few miles away, another Miller was lost that day. Well, I want to close with uh, a reckoning. Uh, the Hellhawks had about 1,000 men in the field at any one time, all the maintainers, the crew chiefs, the mechanics, all of the intelligence men, flight medical staff, operations people, and so on that made a fighter group tick. And of course, there were about 125 pilots at any one time staffing the three squadrons along with uh, staff pilots, uh, command staff. So out of that 1,000 men, perhaps 1,500 served during the war altogether during the 15 months that they were in combat. For the Hellhawks, their toll was what we might consider rather light for an infantry unit. They lost 69 people killed in the 15 months of fighting. Uh, 46 killed in action, 23 killed in training accidents or just the day-to-day -day hazards of operating on a battlefront, even behind the front lines at a fighter base. And we have many other stories in our book, The Hellhawks. In particular, I want to tell you the story of Charles Johnson our History of the Hellhawks author, and his pilot, John Fitzsimmons, on the left. In November of 44, Fitzsimmons goes on a combat mission over Germany, and his wingmates see a German 88-millimeter shell explode very close to Fitzsimmons' airplane. Now, Johnson and Fitzsimmons had been working together for months. The crew chiefs today tell us that they felt the pilots were their brothers. And preparing the airplane for combat you were making sure that it was good enough for your brother to take off and fly in. And at the end of each takeoff, the crew chiefs would then wait for an hour or two at the end of the runway, waiting to see your pilot come back again from that mission. Well, on that November afternoon, uh, Fitzsimmons didn't come home. His wingmates saw his plane struck. Apparently, he was knocked unconscious, and his airplane rolled over and descended and crashed in, on German soil. That afternoon, Johnson was out at the end of the runway. And the flight came back, and he realized the worst. 
And later that evening, that very day, Johnson wrote this poem. All eyes as one surveyed the sight, mentally counting it can't be right. Where's the one that can't be seen? Where's the one to make 16? One by one, sighs of relief, I stood alone in disbelief. You sense the silence that's yours as you go. No words are said, the others know. And yet that night, after writing this poem, Johnson was assigned a new airplane and another pilot, and he got up to fight again the next morning. That's what this war was all about to the Hellhawks. And I think it's true to their story to note that the Hellhawks fought in memory of their friends who didn't come back. They fought for their comrades who were flying wingtip to wingtip with them. And together they fought grimly but efficiently until the victory was won. And as author and crew chief Charles Johnson said, that P-47 was one tough airplane, and I guess so were we. Thank you. Thank you. I was at a, an August reunion of the Hellhawks last uh, year, and it was up in Michigan, just up in Ann Arbor, and about 19 of the Hellhawks were there, including Bob and his family. And of course, there were some Hellhawks or Thunderbolts in the air. There were four P-47s flying at the air show up in Ann Arbor last August. And for some of the pilots who were there and some of the, the, the crew chiefs, that was the first time they'd seen a four ship of uh, Thunderbolts in the air since the war 65 years earlier, one of the pilots went up to the air show pilot and said, you know, that was pretty impressive, but uh, the number four guy was a little loose in formation. <laughs> and here are the, the veterans of the Hellhawks that we saw a year ago last August, and we wish them a long and happy life, and we, of course, we honor their service.